Welcome to Skim This. Congress is back in session, and the first item on one senator's agenda was proposing a nationwide abortion ban. We'll break down the details of that bill, along with the week's other major headlines, from new inflation numbers to a major shift in the war in Ukraine. And speaking of Congress, Anytime you have an informational edge that the rest of the public doesn't have, you're making it a two-part playing field where there are those in the inner circle who have privileged information, who are either wealthy or powerful or both, and there's everyone else. A recent investigation revealed almost one-fifth of Congress has engaged in sketchy stock trades. We'll speak with one of the reporters who broke the story. And to wrap things up, we're digging in to the art of mediocrity and why being bad at something can actually be more fun. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some of the week's biggest headlines and give you some context on why they matter. First up, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham sent shockwaves through both parties yesterday after introducing a nationwide abortion ban. On Tuesday, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a bill in the Senate that would ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy nationwide, with some exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. And states with stricter laws would be able to keep their bans. But this proposed nationwide cutoff which Graham pitched as a way to combat late-term abortions, comes before many fetal anomalies are discovered, which happens around the 20-week mark. Rolling out this bill just a few weeks before midterms was a bold move, and it didn't exactly get a standing O from the Republican Party. In a press conference this week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell spoke out against Graham's actions and the idea of an abortion ban at the federal level. I think most of the members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level. Zooming out, GOP reps have been divided on how to handle abortion access ahead of the November elections, especially since polling data suggests a majority of Americans disagree with the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Still, while Graham's bill didn't seem to get the traction he was hoping for, Capitol Hill wasn't the only place with an abortion update this week. Also on Tuesday, the West Virginia legislature passed one of the strictest abortion bans in the country, a bill that restricts nearly all abortions except in cases with life-threatening situations, rape, or incest. For those last two scenarios, a patient could seek an abortion under the bill within eight weeks of conception and only if they file a police report for the incident within 48 hours of having the procedure. Overall, this bill would significantly reduce access to abortion in West Virginia and has some Democratic lawmakers worried about a, quote, maternity desert in the area. For our next headline, let's get to the latest inflation numbers. The direction of the U.S. economy befuddling the experts again and rattling investors in a huge way as the latest consumer price index data finds inflation in August was mostly unchanged. This is probably not surprising to anyone who's had to buy groceries recently, but inflation is still with us. The new consumer price index report came out on Tuesday, 
And in August, prices were 8.3% higher than they were at the same time last year. That inflation rate is slightly down from the July numbers, but this report shows inflation is nowhere near under control. Digging into the numbers, we learned that while gas prices are down, rent, healthcare, food, and material goods like furniture have all stayed high. After that less than ideal report dropped, the stock market had its worst day in over two years on Tuesday. It's safe to say investors and everyday Americans are now kind of spooked because inflation just hasn't taken enough of a dip. So the Federal Reserve is going to have to keep hiking interest rates until prices substantially decrease. In fact, the Fed is meeting again next week where another rate hike of at least three quarters of a percent is expected. And P.S. We got a peek at how these rapidly rising rates are affecting Americans and the housing market. On Thursday, we learned that mortgage rates in the U.S. soared to over 6% for the first time since 2008. And in July, new home sales sank to a six and a half year low. So we're still waiting for the economy to turn around. And speaking of turning things around, we are seeing a stunning turn of events in Ukraine six months after Russia's unprovoked invasion. The Ukrainian military has succeeded in taking a broad swath of territory, forcing Russian soldiers to retreat. Here's the context. Beginning over the weekend, the Ukrainian military has started racking up some serious W's. Ukrainian forces have now apparently reclaimed thousands of square miles, with huge gains in the northeast of the country. So how'd this happen? The TLDR is Ukraine's military is stronger because it's now got access to longer-range missiles provided by the U.S. and Western countries. And that military support has translated into military gains. As for how things are going for Russia, well, so far, they've pulled back most of their forces in the Northeast region and are doing some major reassessments of their military strategy. And according to U.S. intelligence, Russia is running low on critical supplies and is now attempting to purchase weapons from North Korea so it can keep fighting. So this could be the start of a new chapter of the war. And our final headline is more of a PSA. Surprise iPhone users, you can now edit your text messages. The latest iOS 16 software from Apple allows us to edit and unsend iMessages. Users can now edit messages up to 15 minutes after they've been sent, or they can unsend the message entirely within two minutes. But spoiler, you won't be able to fix all your problems or cringy texts with this new update because only other iPhone users who've also updated their software will be able to see your edited versions of text. If someone's phone isn't up to date, they'll still receive the message in its OG form. Also, users can see when you've edited your text, and they can see the pre-edited versions of your messages as well. So think of this new update kind of like track changes, where people can see all the versions of what you've sent. And a final word of warning, this feature only works if both users have iPhones. 
So if your ex uses an Android, stay strong out there. Every fall, high school seniors around the U.S. gear up for college application season. I got my college acceptance letters back. I have decided I'm going to Yale. I'm getting the champagne. She's going to Yale. She's going to Yale. And everyone wants their own Elwood's moment. I go here. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? But over the years, getting that prestigious degree hasn't gotten any cheaper. So students have been reconsidering the value of an Ivy League degree on their resume. And now, a recent scandal is giving parents and prospective students a whole new reason to doubt some of the U.S.'s top colleges. We're going to break down the drama over college rankings and who's fudging the numbers in 60 seconds. Every fall, U.S. News and World Report drops its buzzy college rankings list. The latest list came out this week, and some people had to do a double take when Columbia University dropped from second to 18th place. This dramatic 16-point drop has parents, educators, and students questioning what these rankings are even based on if a university can fall so far in only one year. So what happened here? Back in February, a Columbia math professor published 21 pages of research poking holes in the data that the university provided to ranking websites. He called the stats submitted inaccurate, dubious, or highly misleading. And last week, Columbia admitted to fluffing up their numbers and confirmed they falsified data on undergrad class size and stats on the percentage of faculty with PhDs. And while this sounds like it was bad PR for Columbia, it was also bad PR for the places that generate these top college lists. Because it turns out that a lot of these college rankings rely on kind of sketchy methodology to decide which schools get the top spots. The lists actually depend on data provided by the schools to create their rankings, which just makes it easier for those institutions to mess with the numbers and get a higher placement. We all know a guy who's 5'11 IRL and tells everyone he's six feet. And apparently, Columbia's not the only one fudging its profile. Last November, a former dean from Temple University was found guilty of faking numbers from 2014 to 2018 to increase revenue from their online business programs. Big picture, people have been questioning these rankings for a while. Like, can you really boil the worth of a school down to a number on a list? And do these lists just give top schools the excuse to charge top dollar? Whether this Columbia scandal is the end of college ranking culture remains to be seen. But the good news is there are other sources of info about universities' academic and social lives that parents and students can go to. The US government actually provides all that info in a shockingly easy to use format at collegescorecard.ed.gov. I gotta go look up my alma mater. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Over the past few years, 
people have been taking more of an interest in the financial lives of members of Congress. It's rare these days for this divided Congress to agree on absolutely anything, but there may be one issue. Members of Congress should not be playing the stock market while we're in office. Some people sell earrings online and others make $66 million worth of trades in a single year. And it's totally legal. Members of Congress have been really good at timing the stock markets. We're talking about senators and representatives trading stocks which can sometimes pose a potential conflict of interest with their jobs as public servants. To understand the debate about whether or not people in Congress should even be allowed to trade stocks at all, we called up Kate Kelly, domestic correspondent at The New York Times, who also just completed an investigation on this topic. First, let's start with that report. Kelly and her colleagues looked at publicly reported transactions by members of Congress from 2019 to 2021. And they found that of the 535 senators and representatives, about 180 of them trade individual stocks or have an immediate family member who does. And of those 180, 97 did it in a way that could be regarded as conflicted. When we say conflicted, what we mean is if you're a congressperson and you sit on a committee, let's say you're on the Armed Services Committee, you may know from a classified briefing some details about a possible conflict in Ukraine, when that might start and what American equipment is going to be sent to Ukraine. So we looked for conflicts like that that could reasonably considered to be non-public information, privileged information that members are getting, and that could possibly impact their decisions to buy a stock or sell a stock. Congressional stock trading really made headlines back in 2020, when some representatives sold off their healthcare stocks after learning non-public information about the potential impacts of COVID-19. And while their constituents were outraged, only a few legislators were ever investigated and none have faced consequences yet. So TBH, Kelly and her colleagues weren't shocked to learn that some members of Congress had apparent conflicts of interest in their stock portfolios. What did surprise them though, was how many members of Congress did. Because when they crunched the numbers, basically one fifth of Congress or their immediate families were trading in a way that could be considered a conflict. You might be listening to all of this and thinking, wait a second, is that even allowed? It's legal enough. Kelly told us, yeah, even if something's a conflict, that doesn't mean it's actually an illegal trade. Insider trading, legally speaking, is taking non-public information that could be material, meaning it actually could affect the price of a stock or another security in a meaningful manner and trading upon it before that information is made public. We have not identified in this story or in general any clear examples of that. All of what we found was legal. According to the Times, the trades that posed potential conflicts of interest appeared to be routine and only had tangential connection to the influence a lawmaker might have had on an issue. So even though these trades might seem fishy, they could just be pure coincidence. Not to mention, Congress members often have brokers or family members who trade for them, and they maintain that no sensitive information was shared with their buyers. But regardless of whether this stock trading is towing the legal line, 
just plain old sketchy or neither, some advocates have been loudly calling for members of Congress to give up trading completely. So we asked Kelly to help us break down both sides of the spicy debate over whether nationally elected representatives should have access to a Robinhood account. Just kidding, they probably all have stockbrokers. Let's start with the arguments in favor. There are arguments that their freedom to trade or their spouse or dependent children's freedom to trade, which is all wrapped up in this as well, should not be limited for a few reasons. Number one, there's a fear that it will disincentivize talent to come serve in Congress, that if you're wealthy or maybe you're married to somebody who's wealthy or you're married to somebody who's in the investment business themselves as a profession, you may not want to run for office. You don't have to give up your wealth by any means, but you can't play the market. There's an argument that as long as the member themselves isn't trading, if their family members are, what of it? So that's not to say that conflicts couldn't theoretically arise, but a lot of people sort of self-impose restrictions that they think keeps the process ethical. And what about the arguments against? Members of Congress make $175,000 a year. That is three times what the average American makes. And the idea that they would need to make some extra cash by trading in a way that at a minimum appears questionable and maybe at a maximum is using their positions of privilege to enrich themselves is outrageous to a lot of people. Anytime you have an informational edge that the rest of the public doesn't have, you are taking value from the stock market from the rest of us. And you're also making the playing field somewhat unfair. You're making it a two-part playing field where there are those in the inner circle who have privileged information who are either wealthy or powerful or both, and there's everyone else. Then there's the trust issue. There's the idea that, you know, hey, we elected you, congressperson from my district, you're expected to go to Washington and work hard on our behalf on issues that matter to our community and our state and our nation. And why are you repeating private information that you're getting from constituent meetings or classified briefings or anything else to your spouse or your broker or anybody else? Why aren't you just hunkered down and focused on the work? Now that we've heard both sides, let's talk about where this debate is going. The last time there was any legislation to regulate elected representatives trading was in 2012, when the Stock Act passed. That stands for Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge. Kelly says that while the Stock Act didn't impose a ton of restrictions on officials, it did require that trading disclosures be made public, which actually made the Times analysis possible. And now, nearly 10 years since that act passed, some officials are considering taking things a step further. Last year, a group of legislators proposed a bill that would require representatives, senators, and their immediate family members to trade in a blind trust. Other legislators believe that doesn't go far enough. In February, a bipartisan group of senators, including Elizabeth Warren, proposed a bill to ban members of Congress and their families from owning or trading stocks, bonds, commodities, futures, or any other form of security. Still, even though this legislation seems to have bipartisan support, Kelly told us, 
This just hasn't been a popular agenda item. I just think it's low on the list of priorities for them, as much as the American public may want it. But in fairness, a lot has been going on. We've been affected by the war in Ukraine. We have economic questions, whether we're headed into recession. Midterm elections are coming up. So a lot's been going on. And I think Congress probably feels like this is sort of a technical issue, an administrative issue that's not necessarily in their own interests anyway, because they don't necessarily want to see their freedom curbed. And it just keeps getting to the bottom of the pile. But just because lawmakers may have tabled this for now, doesn't mean the big issues posed by stock trading have gone away. What's at stake here is really trust in Congress. Two thirds of people polled on the issue of congressional stock trading think that there should be a ban on members trading individual stocks. Just to break it down, trust and faith in our government is super low. This is not good for society. This is not good for democracy in America. And this is just one of many issues that I think runs the risk of eroding people's trust in their elected lawmakers. And it really does raise questions. If you want to check out the full Times investigation, we'll leave a link to it in our show notes. And I got injured, which I hear is like an inevitable introduction, initiation to the sport. So I did what all injured runners do. And I started taking this yoga class and I am so bad. Like it felt like the instructor was always getting off her mat to like inevitably wander over to me to like try to provide some remedial help. And I was there with a friend. And afterwards we were taking a walk and I said, I'm so bad. I hope you weren't watching me. And she said two things. One was like, no, I don't care what you're doing. And two, she was like, my husband won't even come to yoga. He won't do anything he's not great at. And I I knew right away that I had to write about that. That's Rachel Feinzig, the work and life columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And we've all heard or lived a version of the story she just told. Trying something new, not being the absolute best at it, feeling embarrassed, and eventually giving up. In fact, that cycle has become more and more common because as a society, we've been slow creeping closer towards perfectionism at all costs. A recent study found that average levels of social perfectionism in tens of thousands of college students increased by about a third from the late 1980s to 2016. Basically, we're now conditioned to hate being bad at stuff which in turn can actually be bad for us. I think when we're too perfectionistic, I mean, I talked to someone who researches perfectionism and it can lead to real mental health consequences, anxiety, depression, perfectionism. I think we throw the word around a lot, but the the, true definition of it is like, it's a deficit. Like you constantly feel like you have to be proving to other people that you're perfect because you internally feel like you're like just really deficient or messed up in some way. So Feinzig decided to look at the flip side of things. What happens when we let ourselves just be bad at something? And for the people she interviewed, it turns out that being bad can actually feel pretty good. 
They talked about so many benefits of just feeling more patient and empathetic with other people, maybe in other parts of their life where they were good at things. Let's say they weren't good at a hobby, but they were good at their work and it made them kind of more understanding when people they worked with made mistakes. When they themselves made mistakes, it made them more able to say, I messed this up. They also talked about just the joy and freedom of it, of not having to worry about being good at things. And it was kind of like this weight off of their chest. And the last thing was this idea that it made it sustainable, that when you're constantly trying to be perfect or the best, you're more likely to get injured or burnt out. And just taking it down a level enables you to do this thing that you love for, for longer, whenever you want. Besides normalizing not being a world-class surfer, singer, or baker, allowing yourself to be mediocre in some parts of your life actually helps you be better at the other parts. I heard from one guy who was like, I pick my work and parenting. Like, those are the two things I aim to be, like, the very best I can be. And the other stuff, I love and I do, but I take it down a notch there. And for some people, this mindset shift doesn't just apply to their hobbies. It also applies to their day jobs. I did a piece last year about how to care less about your job. And I think it's okay to embrace mediocrity in parts of your job. I think part of it is like paying attention to what your boss cares about. And you can kind of test the waters. I think kind of playing around the edges and figuring out where you want to set boundaries and kind of what things in my job do I really want to get better at? And am I really going to put all my effort into? And then what kind of things am I going to be a little bit more mediocre? And I think that's like a healthy way to approach work. Regardless of whether that's a mindset you want to embrace in your nine to five, Feinzig reminded us, sometimes we need to experience being bad at something in order to get good at it. Progress isn't linear, right? This, this is maybe obvious to everyone else, but this is like one of my huge learnings as an adult. Like I think I truly believed after years of school and grades and maybe, you know, participation trophy culture, I don't know, but I got the impression like you put in the work you do better, you get the prize, and it just kind of goes in lockstep. And it's just not true. I mean, one of the sources I talked to who's a professional mountain biker talked about how, you know, oftentimes like you work and work and work and you stay stagnant or you get worse and then you have a breakthrough. It just doesn't go in a, in a straight line. So if you're looking to find your inner amateur, but you're struggling to let go of those perfectionism instincts, just remember. No one else cares. No one's looking at you. They're just worried about what they are doing. And also, it's so corny and trite, but it is never too late. I've been flooded with emails from people who in their like 60s and 70s finally learned to like play the flute or like whatever thing, you know, thing it was that they've always wanted to do. They have no rhythm, but they've always had this dream. Like, I think there's a sense maybe because of this perfectionist culture that we've missed the boat that, you know, if we didn't start like training in this thing at like 13, that we can never do it. And it's just not true. Tons of people pick up things at every moment of their lives. We're never too old for a participation trophy. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. 
Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. Thank you.